Hey, it's Broken Office Chair, a podcast produced by Alternatives. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie's a Chicago native, first-generation Salvadoran Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to speak candidly about their experiences as people of color in their various professions. In the episodes, they'll address topics such as issues in the nonprofit sector, racial equity, DEI in practice, and much, much more. So stay tuned. The following episode of Broken Office Chair was recorded live at our second Cocktails and Complicity event. The audio quality reflects that. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Thank you all for coming. Um, And I want to first talk a little bit about Cocktails and Complicity. We came about this as an extension from the podcast. A lot of folks gave us really positive feedback about the podcast, um, feeling seen, uh, feeling validated, and uh, what they've experienced, et cetera. And so we wanted to create a space where folks can have conversations live and give an opportunity to interact with folks who want to interact with us. Um, And so I want to talk about the two amazing women who are next to me, who were podcast guests season one, Leslie Honore and Ayoka Samuels. Uh, I'll give you two seconds to introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about yourselves and then we can get started. So Ayoka. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to those people I've seen before. Uh, Like I said, Ayoka, I am a... uh, uh, a community person, my whole career, my whole life, uh, all about community development and making sure that communities uh, really have, and the people that live in our communities really have an, a higher quality of life than what they're used to. So that means that all my jobs, which I'll talk about at some point, um, have some social impact uh, lens to it. So I'll stop there. Cool. All right, Leslie. Um, hi, everybody. Good to see some familiar faces and new faces. Um, before any of the titles um, that I'll rattle off, um, I am first and foremost and primarily a poet. It's been my art that has um, been the Forrest Gump feather and blown me into different places <laughs> and um, landed me different adventures. Um, so a uh, published author, poetry and children's books that are on their way. Um, and then by day to pay the bills and um, to challenge my sanity, um, <laughs> I'm the CEO of Urban Gateways, which is a nonprofit here that focuses on um, arts access for youth. We like to say um, our mission is to ensure that no matter what zip code someone lives in, that they can have exposure to create, to enjoy, and to um, see the arts because it is what shifts us and, and connects us all. Um, and then I'm a mama. I've got three kiddos who two thirds of them are grown. Um, and it's it's a joy and a, a new adventure parenting adults, and I think that's probably a podcast in, it, yeah. in, in, in itself. Yeah. Also, the only way I can participate in that conversation is if I'm allowed to talk about my chihuahua. That's the only parenting I've done. Um, and yeah, so I'm excited. These are two women. I was just telling them earlier that I've looked up to them for such a long time, and I feel like I'm allowed to play with the cool kids now that I get to chat with them. So let's uh, get started. And so there are a couple of new faces in the room. So I want to do some kind of ground setting and recap a little bit about how y'all defined what the nonprofit industrial complex is. Whoever wants to take it first, because I didn't give y'all that question ahead of time. Well, <laughs> She's like, I'm just going to hand it off. Oh, um, 
I define it as the underbelly and the truth of mm. of what we have leaned on to fix all of society's problems mm. um, and then make them have to be compliant to society's bullshit. Yeah. Well said. Woo! Okay. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I think the only other thing that I would add to that is, um, you know, when you go to other many other countries that are supposed to be, you know, like economically successful, whatever, blah, blah. You know, it's interesting the way that the United States is set up that um, so much of what needs to happen for citizens and people who live in residents that live here in this country is, is actually not taken care of as much as you would think from the government. So in, even though we're sitting here paying taxes, even if you think you don't pay taxes, you are, right? Um, and so we never get the benefit of all of that. So uh, the nonprofit world kind of picks up the slack. And in some instances, in the craziest ways, if you really think about it, you know? And so I would say that that's, that's the thing that I would add um, in terms of the weirdness, actually, around how our country that we live in, uh, regardless if you claim it or not, doesn't really take care of its people. Yep. I am being drawn back to the podcast I did with you, Leslie, because I, the way I've been talking about it lately, it's like a communication of our values as a country in which we say that only those who earn enough money have the right to certain services like healthcare and quality education. And so it speaks to how we value folks based on their net worth. And it says a lot when for those who are poorest, we feel as a country that they have earned the lowest quality amount of services. And we gatekeep those services by saying you have to do A, B, and C conversations around drug testing to get your link card and all of these different things. Um, this idea that if you haven't earned enough money, then you are inherently a bad person is basically right. our approach. And so that's the kind of like perspective shifting that I've been talking about quite a bit to add to what you all already said. Um, and so when you start on such a like, we're here and we have this understanding, right? but we still work in this field and have spent so many years dedicated to this field. Decades. And I, I'm not quite at decades with an S. <laughs> Don't put me out there like that. <laughs> uh, I haven't made the second S yet. <laughs> um, but wow, called out today. But anyway, um, I want to go back because we enter this field with a lot of optimism, idealism, and I believe we still have it, right? But I want to talk about what was your first heartbreak with this field? Mm. <laughs> sure, since you took the prison district. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't say prison. Do you do nonprofit? Carry on. Carry on. Um, okay, so my first heartbreak, because to be clear, I've had like multiple heartbreaks in nonprofit I think and the social easier impact. question would have been when have you not had right because I just had one this year but um when I first started working out of college I worked for a nonprofit and I don't, I'm gonna call it out it's called the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization Ooh. at the we time today. at the time <laughs> okay. at the time I was 
at 21 and I was ready. And in the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, uh, when I graduated from college uh, a long time ago, according to some people, um, the area that you know a lot of people want to live in now was called the low end. Mm. And so a lot of people didn't want to be over there, right? Um, and then after a while, it was gentrified. gentrified. So anyway, so I come in, I got my, uh, I'm ready to do the work, this, that, and the other thing, da 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 And I do the work with, uh, with uh, uh, adult uh, basic education and some other stuff, family literacy, da 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 And one day I go to work, and me and anyone else that was under the age of 25, we were all laid off. And the executive director says to us, the reason why he's laying us off is because we are young and we can get a job somewhere else. Ooh. And uh, you two girls over here, I was one of the two girls over here, you guys don't have any kids. And so, you know, you have time. So we're going to let y'all go. Nice. And what he didn't realize is he chose the wrong one. As I was mentioning to a few other people earlier, my father was an attorney and I told him what happened. And he was like, oh my God, this is going to be so much fun because we're going to sue the hell out of them for discrimination, right? And so at the time, it was a nonprofit organization that's supposed to be doing all this good work for people in, in Kimball, Oakland. And don't get me wrong, that was happening, but this was also happening, right? Mm. So I'm like, so you okay with just letting me just be gone without a job? You know, if anybody, I'm, I don't have any other really work experience. Are you serious? And so you're going to discriminate against me based upon my sex and based upon my age, right? And so um, we got together, everybody that was under 25 years old, and eventually removed the executive director from his position and all joined the board. Well done. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, that was. That was awesome. And so I learned from that experience, uh, which my dad was working with us all along the way. And he was like, well, if y'all going to go in, let's do this. But understand that if you're going to, and forgive me for all the people who are, you know, uh, nonviolent, but this is what I'm about to say. <laughs> Remember, he's an attorney. He says, if you're going to kill the king, kill him and cut him at the knees. And you have to be ready to go all the way in, because this is what it's going to be. So I had to build my armor and understand how to stand in front of these people who were so much older than me, you know, um, but also just being able to go in, understanding that, no, this is not cool. And also we want this organization to be what it needs to be for several decades after this. So it was a thing, um, as you can probably tell, it's still, you know, it's still mm -hmm. impacting me because I was like, what? And so I'll never treat people who are younger, who come into this work the way that I was treated because everybody has value and everybody can, sh can share. It's not cool. So yeah, that was my first heartbreak. I'm better now. My um, podcast team is pretty young. I don't know if y'all want me putting y'all's ages out there. <laughs> They're nodding. So uh, Catherine, who produces the podcast is 23 and Deanna, my assistant is 26. And so if we undervalued our young people, we just talked about all the amazing content that's been being put out right. with a young team. Right. You can't just discredit people that way. Yeah. Okay. Leslie, go ahead. Ooh, um, since we name the names. Um, <laughs> yes, this was maybe 15 years ago. Oh, and I, I like the, the 
university timing. So 15 years ago, I was still married and I was married to um, an abuser. Um, I'm a survivor of domestic abuse um, and all the layers that there were to it, verbal, emotional, financial, physical, mm -hmm. and didn't grow up seeing that. So I, you know, no, but didn't you see looked, the red flags? Well, right. I've never I seen see those flags. How, how are you supposed to know when you've never seen those flags mm -hmm. before? You're just in love, you get married, you have kids, and then one day you wake up and go, how did we get here? You know, this death of, of tiny cuts that are now open gashes. Mm -hmm. So this was my first full-time job after having had um, the kids. My kids were seven, eight, five, and two. Um, and this was me going back full-time. And it was with the YMCA of Metropolitan Chicago. And at the time, um, the CEO and president um, was Dick Malone. And he brought in his best friend and next door neighbor and woman who had not worked for 30 years um, to head um, the human services division. And I had been there for six months and we had just gone through the process of um, responding to and winning an RFP with CPS. This was back in the day when CPS ended at 2.30 and they wanted to do oh, a that, pilot yeah. to add 90 minutes to the school day because our kids were losing like four years of education by the time they got all the way through high school. And so I was one who responded to that um, RFP and created that program. And so when she came on, she couldn't let me go because I was the holder of the the information and then she couldn't let um the business manager go because they were the holder of the budget mm. but everybody else who was brown or black interesting you know you looked up and you're like wow okay and then they were replaced by all um young white people who you know somewhere along the line understood that they didn't have to work hmm. that we would do the production and they would do the, but that wasn't the bad part. <laughs> that wasn't the bad part. So, and it's definitely shaped my leadership and it's it shaped, it's like who I never want to be. And so mm. I, I work hard not, not to be that person. Um, she demoted people, including myself, without mm. telling us. We just looked up and our paycheck was Dude, smaller and we were like, baby. So wow. HR was in transition. And I think we've talked about this before, not all um, skin folk are kin folk. They were lots of skin folk in HR that you thought you would be protected by when you mm. came and talked to. And there was no protection there um, until there was a, a shift. And um, new guy was like, record everything, record every Saturday phone call she gives you, every email where she asks you to report something at 1030 at night. And if you don't see it, then you're written up. Every oh, time no. she's asked you to stay after hours um, with no plan. Um, this was my escape plan. This was my, I had benefits. It was $40,000. I don't know who I thought I was going to raise my $40,000. <laughs> um, but this was how I was getting out of this dangerous situation. Mm. And so I was jumping through every hoop with mm. horrible mm. fear that if I did not, I would not be able to get us to safety. So that included um, coming in every other Saturday to do payroll. My team was maybe 210 people and we did a system wow. called Kronos and I had to manually enter everyone's, um, you know, their their hours. Um, so it was it was bad. We would have meetings that she would start at 5 p.m. And I'd be like, oh, I have no, to leave. I, my kids are in daycare. Mm. It's a dollar a minute per late fee if I'm there after six. And she's like, oh, I'll pay for it. I'm like, no, I don't want my two-year-old in, in daycare. Right. 
right. from seven in the morning to eight o'clock right. at night. Right. It's, it's, right. And then she said, well, you should hire somebody with what? <laughs> like, wow. I mean, it's a privilege. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it, it boiled down to, I'm, I'm trying to wrap it up and make it short. There were two phases in this pilot we did with CPS. And the first phase, how we paid everyone, no one caught that we should put aside 1% for um, the wise overhead. And mm. so when we were doing the second round, I said, hey, really quickly, make sure that we're saving the 1% because we didn't save it on the first round and we're actually, it's, it's a wash. Well, she took that and ran with it and lowered everybody's no, no, no. pay. So I had some program coordinators making $25 an hour and these were all part-time positions from phase one. And then the second round was only making 17. And the facilitators from the first round were making 17. And the second round were making like 11. And of course they talked because they were friends and that's how they got the job. And so I, I said what anybody would say, it is well within your right to go to HR and to ask to see the contract to which the wise beholden to CPS, if you want to look at the terms, you can ask. That's your contract. You're the, the people that are, that's hired under that. It's, it's, it's not secret. And so they did. They were angry. And I, I had been, I was like, hey, we need, we can't do that. This is, people are going to talk. So she tried to fire me. She tried to put me on suspension. Hmm. But we had been working with HR. The moral of the story is document. We've been, I've been working with HR to, to save every communication. Every email, I would write up notes after every conversation that we had. So I was like, well, you can't. Mm. And I was able to negotiate leaving and extending. I was able to negotiate um, a severance, um, no challenge to unemployment. And then I was able to go back to the Y, I think, eight years later, mm. which then, um, you know, very much propelled um, my career. Um, but my heart was broken. And I don't even know how many, like personally, as a mother, as an employee who was doing all the things that you're told to do, work really hard, do really good work, be innovative, do extra, come in early, leave late, put all your everything out there. And then we were working with really, you know, marginalized communities, schools, the majority of the schools were the schools that Rahm Emanuel closed. So these were schools that were low performing, that kids, you know, were living in poverty, that didn't have access, that were really struggling because those are the schools that were identified with needing mm -hmm. the extra school time. Uh -huh. Um, and so I was just like, this is some bullshit. This is some racist shit. If I wasn't a mom, if I wasn't brown, um, if I had more power, she couldn't do this to me. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. Mm -hmm. Like, but it was, it was, it was crushing. It was, it was in the impact. And I think that's like to hear stories like that when people say, well, you know, you're young and you'll find another job. It's like, there is an impact that a change in employment creates right. in everyone's life, yeah. regardless, regardless of where you mm -hmm. are, you know, on the pay scale. Um, and we know it's even more detrimental if you are a woman mm -hmm. and if you're on that lower end of the right. scale. Absolutely. And so to to be the cause, to be the person that knocks that domino over for whatever your biases are, may she burn in hell. <laughs> You know, it's something that's coming up for me right now is um, I wish I would have had that kind of bravery with my situation. So I have like a two-parter. So, and I, I, I feel like I'm still too traumatized to call them out specifically. So I don't think it would be difficult to figure out who 
let me let me let me just add some to to bravery. All bravery comes from some form of cowardice. I'm not an idiot. If Dick Malone hadn't been recently unseated during the pandemic for giving himself a 50k bonus and the woman he was sleeping with and his COO a 50k bonus while laying off 1700 I heard people, about this. Then oh, maybe God. I yeah. probably would not feel as emboldened to speak his name. Yeah, but he didn't already <laughs> There's nothing that she can say Listen, that Listen, jeopardizes I, there, there, you there at is, all. There's there's hot piping tea there, um, and it's now led by what wonderful woman, Dory Whitaker. God mm-hmm. bless her. I, I adore yeah. Dory yes. and everything that she is is working to clean up. But he was there for a long time. A long he did, time. He and mm-hmm. damage was done. Um, I so I have like a two parter, right? I had I was an intern. And I was interning in a Latino-based organization, and I immediately bumped heads with the staff. So I was doing my grad school internship. And so the executive director had been gone for, I started two weeks later, he went on a vacation. And then he came back and worked with me. It was only like a two-month internship. um, And sat me down and said, the reason nobody likes you is because you're too white. He was like, you talk white, your education's white, you dress white, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, you think you're better than everybody else. And that's why nobody likes you. And that was that. And I said, I would do better because apparently it was my fault, right? And I really took it as my fault. So you fast forward and I really looked up to him. He was my intern. I didn't know any other, um, I didn't have any mentorship um, at the time. And he was one of the few Latino MSWs in the field that I knew. I think Latino LCSWs in the field are like, 4%. And so um, I brought him on to our program committee, all these different things at my next organization when I finally got a job. And then my executive director left and she was asked to give a list of folks who she thought were qualified for the role. You were actually put on that list. I heard you declined. And a couple of people, yeah, it came back to me. That's how you know, like overlap over years, right? That's why she says she's known me for a long time. but it kept coming back to me that folks were declining because they knew that I was the interim candidate. So out of respect to me, they didn't want to go for the position because there were relationships that we had in the field. He went for the position, didn't tell me about it. And the process was so shitty. I got called at like 10 a.m. to come in for an interview at noon. They didn't read my resume. And um, they asked me a lot of questions around my ED's, my previous ED's competence. And um, that was the entire interview and they said they would get back to me. I heard that he was taken to several lunches and courted and taken to events or whatever, right? I don't know what actually happened, but I heard he was courted. So he comes on the, onto the organization and the first thing he did was give me a pay cut. And when I asked about it, he said, you make more than I did at your age. That was the first thing. And so I was, that was, and so it just kind of unraveled from there. And like the straw that broke the camel's back for me was there was um, an argument between me and the development director. He had just hired a new development director who was a white man. And the development director was not taking any of my feedback. I'd been the program director for years at this point. He was not taking any of my feedback. And so um, the executive director was like, both of y'all need to stop now. And he calls me into his office. He's like, you're right in what you're telling him, but you don't have to be such a bitch about it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> that's just ridiculous. So I called. I'm gonna need names later. When we're yeah, later. 
recorded. I'm definitely not putting names on recorders, right? Uh, like I said, it, wouldn't, it would not be hard to figure out who I'm speaking to, about. But um, I thought, because when he was announced, um, and I, I met with the board chair and a couple of other board members, and they told me he got the role. And what they said to me was, if you care at all about this organization, you'll stay. And that was the only time I actually defended myself because I was like, those, that's not fair. Like, I've been treated like shit in this process. So telling me that I stay because I care about the organization is not a fair statement. And so anyway, I called a board member after he said that comment. I was like, he just said that I shouldn't have, to, I shouldn't be such a bitch about it. And I've never been called out of my name in, in the workplace. And so the board was like, well, you're going to have to learn how to work with him. And so that's when I submitted my resignation. And it's one of the challenges I think that the trauma is still for me very present is because he's still a very active person in the community and he gets a lot of visibility and he gets a lot of praise. And I get to see that and understand that I not only was I treated that way, but I know he treats other people that way because I've heard other stories. And it, to me, tells me something about as a field, what do we value? What do we reward? And how much do we actually care about integrity when we continue to reward? Like I said, I'm not the only one. But I also wonder if everybody like me is too scared to be like, so-and-so did this, because then what is the backlash on us to speak right. about such a well-respected community leader? Well, it's interesting that you raised that because, um, you know, I have seen that in the nonprofit space in terms of uh, executive leadership, a lot of times with men. And so like the piece that you just described, what you're talking about, and there are so many examples of men who have been in these top uh, executive positions in nonprofit, and even on like on a national level, right? Um, where there's different things that they just break all the dang on rules, right? Um, I mean, and, and they're rewarded when they yes, do that. Yes, oh, it's like celebrate you, it. It's interesting because they fail up, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you have the situation where this dude, I'm like, his hands like on everybody mm-hmm. you know so he puts his hands on everybody um gets a, a smack on the hand and then goes to another organization and it's fine you know and so i, I don't want to acknowledge that that a lot of times that is based upon gender in this particular case you know where you see so many men think about it yourself like all the different scandals for the most part that you hear about but it also comes from a place of privilege, mm -hmm. you know. Am I, I'm I, I'm a uh, typically a white male, or I am a male, or you know, and so just using that particular type of privilege um, to just do whatever the heck you want to do, and then everybody's going to believe you, right? Yeah. And then our society also rewards uh, men in leadership positions where there is an opportunity for people to raise money. See, because people are going to give, uh, and this is true, people are going to give men more money than anybody right. in terms of donating and blah, blah, blah. But then also, you know, the darker your, the, your hue, the less money you're going to get. There's, there's uh, a lot of research on this, right? So it's just like, I hate to say it, but it's just not surprising. No. And it's crazy that we, we still are in a time where we got to sit up here and deal with this. Right. You know, I mean, it's just like 
you know, in your case, in terms of somebody being threatened by you. But also keep in mind, because I remember that. Everybody who was up for that job, we all know each other. Mm-hmm. And we were like, nope. For two reasons. One, because of you. The other reason was that I'm not driving for a whole hour to get to that job. But anyway, I'm just real. I was like, oh, no. I was only coming over there to see the good work that Bessie and this other woman who was the uh, the, uh, the former ED was doing. Because I wanted everybody to see it. Right? But thank God you didn't get that. Yeah. I say that because all the time. Of where you are now, yes. and being able to uh, to do the work that you're doing with people who need somebody like you in this role. I think there's a there's a difference between the way when men and women lead, yeah. and sure. yeah. yeah, and I think um, when you don't when you've never experienced a woman as a leader, and you don't mm-hmm. have um, the resources to get development and training and and help cultivate your your role and then oftentimes we're in um industries where there aren't a lot of women mentors Mm -hmm. so the only leadership you have seen is male leadership and so either you're going to make a choice to use that as an example of what not to do Mm. but often what we see a lot of people are women do is co-op those behaviors because those are the successful behaviors and then either we're penalized for doing it better mm-hmm. or we penalize ourselves because mm-hmm. it's not true to who we are or we penalize mm-hmm. our team because they never needed that toxicity mm-hmm. anyway but when we don't have other examples of it we are left with constantly picking apart what is there and going what is good what is true what is valued is it my bias that i'm seeing it a certain way how do i apply it what do i take from it and it, it, it's, it's, it is like going to Marshall's, their clothes there, none of them are your size. Everything has been picked through. It's before the Wednesday good stuff delivery. There's like, that was there's, very specific. That is very, y'all know <laughs> That's Marshall's when they deliver, by the way. It's like all the pieces and you're like, I can't even put together an outfit, but this is all I have to pick from. Mm to to put it together and 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 then you look just like that a hot mess mm-hmm. it's funny because that's what we we're talking about offline a little bit is that we talk a lot at least i let me speak for myself i talk a lot about race and ethnicity and the intersection with the work right but i don't talk about a lot of what it means to be a woman in this field period and another thing that came up for me, Ayoka, while you were talking is I had a board chair that literally at a holiday event grabbed my ass and everybody laughed. And I have so many friends who have stories like that, board members, executive leadership, something like that. And the men are just allowed to do that. And we had, I also, when I took my first ED position, I was sharing this with my team. It was amazing the amount of folks that commented on my looks as part of my ability to do my job. Yep. They're like, oh, you're you're pretty too. So that would be helpful for you to be able to f- raise money. Wow. Excuse me, how do you think I'm raising money that my looks matter, right? And so like, I wanna hear from y'all what have been some of your experiences in those spaces. Sure. So I'll tell a quick story. Um, when I was at, uh, I'm fine with this too. When I was working at Boys and Girls Clubs of uh, Chicago, 
And this was a while back. They have like a lot of different CEOs since this dude. He was terrible. He was, and everybody knows it, right? But anyway, we go to uh, this event. It's called the First Look for Charity. Uh, the um, the, the first look for charity for the uh, auto show. Mm. Okay. Oh, right. oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so I was like so happy to be there because I can't afford that ticket, right? So you go, and um, I was looking good, I have to admit, <laughs> right? And so it was crazy because, like, when you're uh, like direct line staff or program director at Boys and Girls Clubs, again, you're a little younger, you mm -hmm. know, typically. And so uh, I go. And my boss, who's a black woman, who was the club director, the club that I worked with, we go. And we're so excited. And then the um, executive director of the Boys and Girls Clubs at that time was like, well, let's take a picture. And he's a white, a white man. At the time, he might have been close, a little over 60. So he was, he's in the middle. And then it's me and then my boss, who's also a black woman. So he says, oh, we look like an Oreo cookie. And I looked at my boss. Oh, my boss was like, Woosa. <laughs> you know? And I was just like, did he just, it just ruined the whole thing, yeah. you know, in terms of him saying that. And I didn't know at the time that we should, and I think she didn't really understand that either in terms of saying at the time that we should have said something to HR, mm -hmm. you know? And we, and we didn't, you know? Um, he ended up getting terminated uh, because, you know, he wasted so much money. You know, but um, but yes, it's crazy that it's just like now that people are like, well, wait a minute, I wonder if that's not okay, you know. And um, so, but that's something that happened. Um, it happens. I hate to say it all the time. Yeah, all the time to women in leadership. Yeah, one of my friends took leave earlier this year. She had to take two months off because she had a, and she actually ended up shifting positions because she had to go back to work and deal with the person who um, touched her inappropriately. The agency didn't do anything about it. And so she was expected to just resume work like normal. And that, that, that was this year. And so it's not, we're not talking, I, I know we're going back on some of our stories, but we're talking about things that are happening today and these folks are still in the field. Uh, Leslie, I don't know if you want to Oh, ask. I mean, I, I will be happy if my daughter's go through their professional career and don't have a story where they are objectified. I know that that won't be true. I was like, uh, you know, it, and it doesn't make a difference where you work, how you work, mm -hmm. what industry you work in. It is, it is what we're born into when you identify as a woman. And you are often forced um, to choose, do I speak up? Um, what is my, what is the risk? What is the ultimate mm -hmm. end goal? Am I the only one? Are mm. there other people? Mm -hmm. Can I, you know, and I start thinking as an organizer, are there other people to pull in? Like, how do we have these conversations? How do we build power? Mm -hmm. And often your answer is no, I can't. Mm. It is too risky. I need this job. I just need to find something else. Mm. Um, you know, and you're supposed to take it as a compliment. Yes, it is a compliment you're, you're that somebody's willing to you. rope or talk about mm -hmm. your appearance. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. I, I was I was complimenting. You're supposed to say, "Oh, thank you so much for noticing my body. Thank you. I really makes me feel great. I feel really valued." No, don't give me a bonus. <laughs> Just tell me how good my right. boobs look again. Thank you. 
oh, that's what all women go into debt with Sally Mae for is just for an opportunity for you to talk about my body. <laughs> be I mean, harassed. I mean, right? there are yeah. faith leaders who run organizations who are still especially out there <laughs> right now. Especially the people of God. Listen. I'm trying to say it. <laughs> we have a former clergy in the room too. Well, God bless. You know what we're talking about. <laughs> Holla at your people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> talk to your people. Holla at your people. Everybody is responsible for their people. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it's scary. My my first my first role as an ED when I met Bessie, I was so excited. I was oh my god, I was so excited. It was something you know you you. We were talking about a potential partnership. partnership. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um and I was living in hell. I was living where I couldn't even like, you know, you get in your first office and you close the door. This is pre-COVID when we had offices and we liked to go there because we felt we had to. Um, we did the work there. Um, you know, I like had my feet up on my desk, just chilling. And he would just open the door and come in. And like my legs would be up in the air and it, <laughs> hello. Um, yeah. And would make, a, would make a comment or if there was a gala coming. I mean, it was, it was. It was constant. It was it was a constant reminder that he was willing if I would just say yes. And then when I didn't, boom, that's when the slow undermining began and when there was tension and when every decision I made was called into question and and things were limited. I mean, at one point I got to work, I couldn't even see what our bank accounts were. I didn't even know if I could pay payroll because he had limited my vision on, I'm like, well, then run it. I mean, so I left, but um, it, it's, it's, it is pervasive. It is, it, it, it's like white supremacy. It, it's in the air we breathe. It's, it's the walls mm-hmm. all around us. None of us get through that without it happening to us. Do you find that it impacts, like, for me, it impacts my daily choices, for example. Like, I have a fitted shirt underneath this right now, right? But I have the oversized shirt under Girl, over it. Right? Do you know, I was like, I'm going to put my thigh. It's my thigh. It's brown. I've been <laughs> I put some baby oil on it. Right like, on. But it right does. On. It, it comes up for, this it. comes up mm-hmm. a lot in the literature in terms of professionalism and women of color because women of color tend to be curvier. And a lot of those, uh, what, what are they called? The dresses the dress shift, codes and the, the, the shift dresses the professional dresses are like once you hit double digits <laughs> in your in your clothing the, you can't wear it's like not going people are gonna be like oh it's my not god gonna, and it's not gonna be the same um it's not gonna fit you the same, it's not gonna fit and you the same. i feel mm-hmm. like it's incumbent on me mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. that i'm i'm titled and that means something to a lot of people um it don't mean a lot to my bank account um, but it, it, mean, it means it means something to a lot of people. So mm-hmm. I will often show up at a panel when I know everybody's going to be in their St. John's and Brooks Brothers, and I'm in big earrings and big red lipstick and stilettos. And I just want to make space for people and say, I run an organization. I'm a dope person. I'm extremely intelligent. I have lived experience. And if I want to wear this dress, or if I want my cleavage to show before, you know, it's to my ankles, there's a time limit, there's a shelf life on some of these things, then that does not change. Yeah. The shelf life is not mm-hmm. on my intelligence or my capacity to lead. 
that just that just increases. I go the other. I'm similar to you, but I go the other direction. I'm like, I'm gonna show up in my jeans. I'm gonna show up in my sweatshirt. I'm gonna show up in my hoop earrings because this is what I look like around the house. So I'm like, why do I need to put on something that doesn't feel good to me? And this is this is this is yes, yes. I know that is. I will be in the grocery store in heels. I like heels. As a woman who is five foot nine. And I've never been a small woman. I've always taken up space. And I spent so mm. much of my life trying to make it smaller mm -hmm. that when mm -hmm. I finally said, fuck it, like, if you are uncomfortable with me being right. six foot two because I have on some really bomb Betsy Johnson heels, then that is take that up with you and your jeans. Your it's not mm -hmm. my fault you're five foot three. That's like, that, holla at your parents. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm very... And, very conscious about that because I mm. didn't see that. What I saw was muted tones. What I saw was, mm -hmm. you know, completely covered up. What I saw was muted makeup. And then you would see the people out out of the place and like, this is you. How come you can't be the fullness mm -hmm. of you? Right. At your job, it doesn't change how you right. think. And some folks may like the muted tones and like um yeah. I, we were talking about somebody who was wearing a dress and she was like, oh, but you don't have a dress on. I'm like, no, but you're, she's like, this is how I'm comfortable. I was like, I just want folks to have the option to do whatever, whatever they, wanna do. they want to Equity do. Equity right. is about choice. It is about being empowered to make the choices mm -hmm. that are best for you. And when you limit someone's choices, mm -hmm. that is when the snowball starts, whatever those choices are. And we're rarely ever talking about what Mark Zuckerberg and all of them are wearing. Okay, whatever the hell they want to wear. Basically, right? Right. But even we look at men in the field, how often do we see them wearing this, like the hoodie and the jeans and getting that, all this visibility or the jacket? Like it, it, men are allowed a lot more freedom to show up however the hell they want to than we are. <laughs> it, it just is. I want to, because believe it or not, we're already more than 45 minutes in. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about like, what have you done in your work? One of the things you said is like, sometimes you learn what not to do, but I want to hear a little bit about what you've done in your work and your positions and your um, access to break away from some of the stuff that we're now, that we've been talking about. I'll start with that. I think I, I try to lead with trust um, and, and giving it. Um, when I talked to my teams, I didn't come to leadership through leadership. I came through leadership through programming. So I've mm -hmm. done an iteration of most of my team's job in, in some, some way, way, shape, or fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. And so now with some of the space that um, post-COVID has given us, where we don't have office space, where we are you know, working with a lot more adult autonomy, imagine that. Um, it's, just, it's just like, hey, However you need to get it done, whatever works for you, mm -hmm. get it done like that. This is our meeting time. Hold this sacred. This is our one-on-one -on -one time. Hold this sacred. Occasionally, there'll be something else. But I'm not going to bug you. If you need me, reach out. But I'm not going to hover. Um, these are the expectations. If you don't meet mm -hmm. them, we'll talk about why you can't. But giving, I think giving trust is is probably the biggest lesson that I've learned mm -hmm. and I, I try to lean into very heavily. And that doesn't mean people don't break that trust or don't respect that trust or don't give you back that trust. I'm always like, dang, like, toss it mm -hmm. back this way. But I, <laughs> but I understand how we have been taught uh, yeah. is to immediately distrust leadership. Yep. 
Um, they are immediately um, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's also, it's, that's hard to also like swallow and remind, remind myself of that and not um, take it, take it to heart. For example, I had a, a new staff that I, I brought on. I had an inherited team and I, you know, was hiring little by little um, people that I had selected. And um, we were going through a strategic plan process and they weren't a part of the beginning part of it because they weren't at the organization. And so we were maybe two thirds of the way through and they sent the email where they kind of galvanized their team and were like, and you need to, and you ain't, and this should be, and this is problematic and this isn't mm-hmm. transparent. And I was like, we gonna fight. You weren't here. I've, we've done all of this. If you would have just asked me, I'd have told you. Yeah, I'd have told mm-hmm. you. You didn't mm-hmm. have to to galvanize everybody and mm-hmm. and send That's and have everybody sign off. You could have just asked me, and and you know, and mm-hmm. I was like, and the fact that that's what you did also leans a little bit into your privilege mm. and your expectation that I wasn't doing my job well, and that you knew it better. And that you need to call it out. Mm-hmm. If you would have just asked me, I would have been able to tell you we'd started that. That's how we started the process. You don't have the full, you've been here a couple of months. You don't have the full scope for some of those, those answers. You can just ask me, mm-hmm. you have my cell phone number. You can just, Hey, I was just wondering, and guess what I'll do. Sure. X, Y, and Z. If you look in this file on Dropbox, you can see I'm all sure. the other stakeholders yeah. we've talked to mm-hmm. and look, and there we are. Mm-hmm. But because you have been taught not to trust me, this is the way you think that you can be heard. And I, we, don't, we don't have to continue to perpetuate that. I do want to create a space where don't, don't have me out here looking bad. Like if you see something that I didn't catch, please let me know. Right. But mm-hmm. the same way you want me to address it to you, please remember that I'm a human as well and mm-hmm. address me in that mm-hmm. same way. And those are hard lessons to unlearn and relearn. I to, that brings up two things for me. One is the race to lead report found that uh, one of the things that contributes to burnout for women of color, amongst the the job being harder, the inability to fundraise because white funders don't trust us, and all these other fun things that we know about. Uh, one of the things that came out of there was distrust from the staff, and our staff hold us to a higher accountability yeah. standard because we are women of color. Dude, yeah. I can- <laughs> Every, we do not, yep. contrary to popular belief and hashtags, <laughs> yes, we are magical. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the wand I have is not going to undo everything. Yep. the systems that are in place right. that mm-hmm. limit how we can mm-hmm. make decisions mm-hmm. and grow. Do I want to give everybody a raise? Absolutely. Have the funders given me enough money to do that and keep the lights on? No. No. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, still laugh about the fact that we I've had funders give me the same 50k for the last 15 years of my career that that's how long I've been in the field Yoka um <laughs> and it's the same 50k when I started I my the positions paid 30k a year our positions start at 51k without benefits and so the money just doesn't even stretch as far right, right. and so one of the things I think as an ED going back to you that I have to do and my team has to do is create like we get that you're responding from a place of trauma when you don't trust me and trying to create some space and grace for that even though it's really hard 
is one of the things that I actively have to remind myself to do because of what everybody else's experience has been. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in, in every position where I've been like the executive director or something like that, I expect that. Mm-hmm. You expect it from uh, other people of color. You expect it from women. You expect it from white folks that everybody's going to question you. Yeah. Everybody. And, and then in order for you to get uh, some credibility, you got to have all this data. Because the dominant culture loves data. Right. You can't just go off of what I'm saying that I know what I'm talking crazy. about. Right. And then they're but, not going to fund the survey yeah, for the like, data oh, to, to gather you know. it. You know, and so it's, it's very frustrating. And so you have to get to a place where, like you were saying earlier, to the best of your ability to understand that that's that person's issue, right? And, um, and try, try not to be in a space where you internalize how they're feeling about you when they look at you, mm-hmm. right? Because it's always going to be this dang on challenge. Everywhere you go, it's a challenge, right? And then it's like you got to sit up here and do all this stuff in order for people to give you some level of credibility. Yeah. You know. Um, but I think that what's been successful for me, understanding that and knowing that um, when you show people compassion, it goes a long way. Yep. And as a boss, when you say, you know what? Um, y'all don't look good today. Why don't we just go home? Like, what? Yeah. I just go home. It's cool. Y'all not doing nothing here. You know, so so go ahead and go home. Just really understanding how to use compassion, how to recognize that people are human, you know. And then when you can, be able to show a little bit of your humanity, you know, yourself so that yeah. they can see, they can see that, you know. So I think that, that that definitely goes a long way. And also being clear with expectations mm-hmm. is really good for everybody. And then when your expectations or something changes, be upfront and say, you know what, this changed. But not in a weird way, like yeah. today I decided this. No, 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 no. This is, you know, we're not being imperialist here. We want to be able to be upfront with people, give people true uh, opportunity to have voice or what have you, you know, and, and those things go a long way. Lastly, sometimes you do have to operate and let people know that you're not afraid of them. Yeah. You know, um, doesn't mean that you uh, aren't sometimes afraid. Yeah. But in terms of bringing out your courage, and oh my God, courage comes out when there's fear. Yeah, it is not there if yeah. you are not if having a moment. Cowardice, fear, right. wanting just to walk away. Um, that's mm-hmm. when courage uh, okay. is bred. Yeah, and then you and then people will start to say, "Well, that was really something, right?" And then your reputation after that, um, you know, just really precedes you. It's out there. People will be like, "You know what? That was that was really something. I really appreciated that." And sometimes it comes in areas and from people that you would not even expect. Yeah. Right. You know, they're like, you know, most of the people that tell me, Ioka, I really learned a lot from you. They say that to me after they've left. Then they, I got to take you to lunch. You was right about everything. I tried to tell you. (laughs) I tried to tell you, you know what I'm saying? But it is, um, as, as a black woman, everybody challenges you. 
And I can't wait for the day for that to no longer be the case. But then that means that what's just that the work that you're doing every day, we've succeeded because that means that we got to end racism. We got to end uh, sexism. We're close cousins, you yeah. know, and how we sit up here. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, how we operate, everything comes back down to that. And we will always have these issues that we're sitting up here dealing with until we eradicate racism, until we eradicate sexism. It has to happen. Otherwise, we're just playing around. And the environment will get us next if we don't get it together. And our children will, you know, be living with gas masks. And so I'm being straight up about that, too, you know, in terms of how sexism and racism impacts that as well. You know what I'm saying? So we, we, we've got to do it and we've got to be serious about it. So even if we may not necessarily see it in our lifetime, maybe our grandchildren will. I'm going to ask one more question. I think this is important. Um, how do y'all see yourselves creating a supportive environment for other women? Because I know y'all are women's women. Like y'all, I would not know everybody both of y'all. Everybody's not. Mm -hmm. God bless them too. Um, and that's a part of it. Man. What you just said. Woo. Yeah. yeah. Um, and God bless you is different than bless your heart for anybody who's from the South. So. Um, <laughs> Two different things. Two different things. Um, I think yes. being vulnerable, um, vulnerability is not mm -hmm. value, but it is it's essential to be able to say, This is where I'm broken, this is where I'm still working on mm -hmm. me. This is these are struggles um I've encountered. I've I've that's one thing I've learned through my poetry is any time I'm talking about something that we've universally experienced, there's universal healing because it is a reminder mm -hmm. that we are not um in it alone and that i think is the first thing that um, white supremacy wants us to believe is that mm. we are individually experiencing something mm. and it is not systemic that it is individual to either our our gender our orientation our race um, and that everybody isn't also experiencing mm. an iteration of that um a lot of talking a lot of a lot of creating space um also think sometimes honesty, even when it hurts. Mm. Um, yeah. I had a, a, a staff who I would have loved to have mentored, um, but she didn't want to hear nothing I said. Like she extremely combative, didn't want to come to no meetings. Just as we say, try, she was trifling. And so when she approached me, you know, I, I want to be mentored by you. That is a relationship. Have you established fertile ground for me to invest in that. No, like the little stuff I was saying wasn't received. So why would I think that further right. investment would be received too? Mm -hmm. So sometimes the lessons are, aren't warm and fuzzy ones. It's mm -hmm. like, put this in your pocket and roll it out differently in your next space. Mm -hmm. Cause it's, it's not bringing to you what you want. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think mm -hmm. we, we have to tell our stories. I think that's why this is important. Yeah. Why podcasts are important, why one, one, one conversations are important. Because if we walk around holding this, it's not helping anybody. Yeah. I mean, I would say also, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't have to be you. It could be other women mm -hmm. that are in the universe that could maybe um, click more or like have a, um, there's something there around the point of synergy. If there's people that are just like, yeah, Ioka's just not my cup of tea. Okay, that's fine. 
I like green tea. You like black tea? Here's another person who drinks black tea. Yeah. And so it's important as a, uh, as a leader to have different types of folks around. In this particular case, if we're talking about women, to have different types of women that we can connect to. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then that makes us, you know, all whole. Again, that's how I've been successful in many cases. Yes, sometimes you supervise, you, you're the leader of something of 100, 200 people. So on some level, you have to cut yourself a break knowing that you're not going to sit up here and have a relationship with everybody. It's impossible. But it's impossible. But to have a, have um, other people around, and you can be like, you know what, why don't you talk to that person? Yeah. Why don't you create They'll a relationship with you? They're going to hear better from you for a lot of different reasons. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that being strategic with that, of having different people that can reach out to different people, um, connect with different people, it's fine. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be you. But if you have different manifestations of yourself that look different, talk different, mm-hmm. wear jeans, wear heels, wears flats because they have feet issues, all this <laughs> other kind of stuff, you know, we're, we can sit up here and um, connect with different people because we acknowledge and recognize the fact that there's differences. Yeah. You know, and we got to be able to know to connect. It doesn't always have to be me. Sometimes if I feel as though that's me, I have to ask myself, is that my ego talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think also eradicating the stereotypes of how people have um, put women's relationships in these very, you know, polar ends. Either we are holding hands, skipping, doing each other's hair, doing makeup, <laughs> or we hate each other and undermining our jealous and, and funky acting. The truth is that it is a spectrum of relationships. Mm-hmm. Is it here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it here too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then sometimes it is the friendship that you see maybe once every six months that is still very impactful mm-hmm. and meaningful to you. Sometimes it goes across age. It goes across race. It goes across socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. It is, you're just drawn to that person. And when you mm-hmm. see them, there's peace. Or maybe it's the person that you go to that is going to tell you the right thing or it's the person you go to who's going to enable you who's going to say <laughs> yeah going to say what you want that's to right say. that's right um, and you need all of those people you need all, you need of, all, those all those people, people. There, yeah, there's not <laughs> one way to have any sort of relationship and i think as we start to do the work to unpack mm-hmm. those those very forced mm-hmm. stereotypes about of our mm. uh, identities is when we start to find more power um within within the exchange of information and closeness and, and, and relationship. Thank you. So one of the feedback points we got is folks wanted more space for questions. So we are opening it up earlier for questions. Anybody have one? Um, thank you all so much. I enjoy this every time. I had a question and mm, going back to what we were speaking about earlier in terms of the Death by a thousand cuts with the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, the the aggressions, the aggressions, <laughs> the aggressions upon the aggressions, and um, the things that maybe people aren't seeing, even if they want to. Like, right, we talk about all skin folk and kin folk, and or you know whoever people who have well intentions and da da da. Where and but think they're doing pretty well in the work that they're doing, and they're on this path of DEI or whatever it looks like. And they're not showing up in spaces like this. So they don't hear these nuances and these other stories that aren't being told in like larger forums where everyone is like 
loves to act like everything's just great and up here because, you know, a couple of things have changed. Um, my question is, what what are your thoughts or approaches into how you bring people, not not necessarily like all the way over here, but people who are kind of teetering and they're they're all on board and they're so like, oh, yes, we're doing it, but they're not really doing it. And they're also causing harm in a lot of ways to bring them into these conversations because they're not showing up here. And I know, you know, we're kind of preaching to the choir and I know the choir needs practice, but like, how do we like continue to like bring people in um, that are like kind of on that wobbly edge? Also, would our speakers like a refill is my other question. I would absolutely love a refill. Okay, so you can start to answer while I come around with that. What we do now. What is that? What? Is it fermented? Um, sometimes it's knowing that that sometimes that's not your role or your capacity. Sometimes it is not my role to usher in somebody's journey um, in DEI. If I have paid for training, if I've invested in you as a, as 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 a teammate, if we make this a priority, if we discuss it, discuss it often, if it's part of our principles, if it's our values, if it's in our strategic plan, if it's in our mission, and you still not getting it, then then sometimes it's like, oh, as long as you're doing your job, is you know, and are there times we have to like have conversations? Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, we do not have um, the magic BIPOC wand to. It's magic and happening. Scared. I was like, whoa, whoa! whoa. <laughs> I was magic. Ooh, I am a wizard. <laughs> um, Hagrid is here. Sometimes you don't, and I, I mean, there are people who, mm -hmm. and I think we've all. If you are a person of color in leadership, you have, you have worked with somebody who is not a person of color and who reports to you and. You are the first person of color that they've ever reported to. That is, that's that's just gonna happen. And they believe themselves to be a good ally. Mm -hmm. They believe themselves to have done mm -hmm. the work. Mm -hmm. And they will say offensive stuff to you Not even repetitively. Yeah. And will be hurt when you say, Hey, we need to have a conversation. I'm also thinking about like white EDs. I talk about this quite a bit. White EDs who are being promoted for their DEI work and are not quite there. I also believe that people of color deserve to take breaks. And so it is not necessarily on us to do that work, but I am notorious for pulling in a white person, like, go oh, get your people. <laughs> so that is, that's my approach to a lot of this stuff. Cause sometimes I don't have the energy, but I do think this is, we're not in a position of power. Therefore we can't solve racism. White people need to solve racism, right? And cause they have to give up their privilege. They have to give up their access. They have to give up space. And so this is actually work for them to do. They just include that we have to be included in the process so they don't just dictate what has to be done. And this is where white folks need to do the work. And that's why I'm like, literally go get your people. And I'm like very intentional about that cause I'm too tired to deal with this today. Yeah. You've seen that model. I can't, I wish I can think of the woman I saw on LinkedIn. I had a bunch of friends send it to me and it's, it's a model of how we educate people who are not BIPOC and who don't sit at that intersection on what it feels like to have to educate. Yeah. So it's, 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 Think of a building that has an elevator. This is like the best. Yeah, it's such a good, yeah. okay, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to do justice. Okay. You got a building. You got an elevator that goes up to the 100th floor. The elevator only goes up. You can't take the elevator down. On the ground level at the lobby are people who are not BIPOC 
white people who want to learn, who want to be advocates, who want to grow, who want to lock arms. They need somebody to come down from that level, oh, come down man. the stairs and get them and then bring them up to the different levels. At the hundredth floor, we have dark skin, large, queer women. Cause those are, that's the intersection that receives the most damage. And then we have black people, we have brown people. It goes down based on how you are seen and welcomed by white supremacy. Hmm. Underneath the lobby is the sub-basement. That's where the MAGAs, the Trumpers, the don't tread on me, um, that's where they live. We can't even get to them. The only people that can get to them and help shape them and shift them yeah, are the, the people in the lobby. But people in the lobby have to realize that if you're asking somebody to come from the hundredth floor to come down and get you, to bring you up on this journey, they are doing labor. It is, it is labor just to come down and say, let me share my lived mm -hmm. experience with you which is traumatic and I'm still experiencing it and I know my kids are gonna experience it, but I want to, I wanna come down and I wanna ride the elevator with you. And sometimes we go from the lobby to floor five, floor 10. It's never gonna to get to the hundredth floor though. You're, you're never gonna to get to that experience. I'm never gonna to get to that experience. And I identify with many of those intersections. And I thought that was just a genius, genius way, way to describe. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we hand, have to handle, oh, girl, can you take this one? Cause I can't come all the way down right now. I'm, I'm, I'm in the corner 752 rocking back and forth tired. <laughs> um, we, you know, there, there's allyship in that. But the, the lift is unfortunately on the oppressed people to bring, bring people along on this journey. Cause they have no other way to have access in it. Because they don't have to. If they wanted mm -hmm. to continue to live their life in their, their privileged mm -hmm. safety, mm -hmm. they could. And so that's why it is, it's an effort. And I just thought that was it's a genius way to describe analogy. why we be tired mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Need a nap. I would just say one little thing. I think what y'all are doing is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Don't stop. Don't stop. I know you won't. But the thing is, is just that um, if you can change the mind of one person, you've done your job. Yeah. Because you never know that one person may be the person that we need to change the minds of hundreds of others. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when you feel like, man, I just sat up here and did all this stuff and it's still walking out with the same crazy thoughts, maybe. But it's also possible that in those moments that you don't see them, that maybe they made a different decision yeah. that one time. You know what I'm saying? Quick story. I worked for the state during the, 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 the height of the pandemic. My office was here. I also had an office in Springfield. My job was to go around um, to different parts of the state to uh, recognize people for their volunteerism. And there are still in the state of Illinois very much what we call sundown towns. Mm -hmm. And I uh, remember I went to one. I had to really plan that out because I was like, oops, let's roll. Okay. But when I came to recognize these people for, for their volunteerism, it was all white people who unapologetically 
did not like me because I was black, but more so because I was from Chicago. <laughs> yeah, it was real wild. But anyway, I was from Chicago. But here they were like, well, wait a minute. You came to recognize us? I'm like, yeah. yeah. And they were just like, huh. <laughs> Would you like to have some coffee? I'm like, can I pour it myself? <laughs> and they were like, duly noted, sweetheart. <laughs> and we sat here and had coffee. Because also, being from Chicago, I don't really have an opportunity to meet people who are MAGA people. Or, and straight up MAGA. And, in and, your and, face. Yeah, and, and, and I don't know why you're sitting up here with this mask on, because uh, the you know COVID-19, that doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. You're like, oh, okay, cool, okay. So let me double mask, because I don't know what's up with y'all. But months later, you had those same people who were like, I remember when that woman from the black lady from Chicago came down here. I'm like, okay, it's it's baby steps. Now I say what's a, what's also a big challenge, working with your own folks. And there's a uh, man. We got a lot going on as black people. Oh my god. Um, focusing on that and also seeing us change our minds. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So keep. I mean, I don't know why I feel like I have to say this. You already know. It's worth it. It's worth it to me. Yeah. We know it is. We all yeah, hear. I agree. We, sometimes we just got. It was a little bit that. of a plant question because I wanted Leslie to use that uh, metaphor again. But also, I think, <laughs> but I also appreciate all your answers, and I think that these this is something that's really important to be recorded and shared out, and things that I will share. So I appreciate you all. Um, so thank you. Any other questions? Question right here. I am just curious, we talk about how difficult a lot of these interactions can be and how we build, build up our armor over the years or in different situations. I'm just curious how you guys like kind of come back to self or those days where you feel like you can't put on the armor or even pick it up again. Um, because I have situations like that. I know we all have where we're like, I don't know if I can do it another day today. And I just want to know if you would be willing to share one or two things that helps you kind of give yourself that break. I write. So my, my poetry is how I, I do that. Um, but I don't, I don't like wearing armor anymore. I'm not, um, I'm a poet. I'm not, I'm not, I don't like using those terms with my team. I don't like saying, you know, those, those. She's those, plugging your butt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, you know, uh, you know, front line and, you know, all boots down. I, I, this is not a battle. This is as much as we want to think, we have to stop thinking about things and, and ideas of war because War leads to death, it leads to obliteration, it leads to assimilation, it leads to theft. It, mm. Nothing good comes from war. There is a winner, and typically the winner is because they have used every mean that is inhumane to become the victor. So I'm not wearing, I'm not, I'm not, armor's heavy. I got enough, I'm thick enough. I, I want to be light and limber and be able to pivot and um, to be able to find beauty in this life, even though sometimes it's hard. 
I think that's where I start with that. I'm not fighting. You know, will there are there fights? Yes. You know, do we have to sometimes put on boxing gloves? Yeah. Would I prefer to use Tai Chi and just mm. move your energy back to you? I mm. I don't want to live the rest of my life preparing for battle every mm -hmm. day, even though I know it's out there. That is heavy. And we have enough heavy. I'm a, I want to find my soft life moments, even if it's only 15 minutes with a joint in my hammock until it snows. I will. That is where I will be. Um, but we we got to We we have to. We can't think in that way constantly because then when something happens, that's the only way we're thinking about galvanizing, is with weaponry. Um, Love goes really far. I know it sounds corny, it's true. but it love goes really, really, really far. Does. Our love for ourselves mm -hmm. and our love for each other and be an example mm -hmm. for that. So that's what I try to do. Um, don't ask me about self-care. I'm really bad. I remember you saying that last time. Yeah, she did say that. Um, you know, I think it, uh, from what I'm also hearing from you in terms of like, you know, the work that we're doing, it's hard. You get tired. You sometimes you are exhausted. Um, so when you are tired and you are sleepy, go to sleep straight up. We, um, devalue sleep in our society. Just go to sleep. If you can go sleep. If you're tired, not necessarily sleepy, but you're tired, just stop, you know, go get your cup of coffee or your water or whatever it is that helps you just to kind of like center yourself a little bit, you know, and then find those things that you enjoy to do and then just kind of do that. Right. So, and, and, and spend time. That's what's been successful for me mm -hmm. is sometimes just, you know, I think, let me just sit down. You know, I like to read. I'm a movie person too. So sometimes I'll just look at this movie because it's not me at all. And it gives you an opportunity for your brain to take a break and your heart to take a break. And then sometimes what happens is, is that you get these incredible moments of clarity about something because your mind is not necessarily like, oh my God, the work, the work, the work, the work, yeah. the work. You're thinking about something else. And then you feel, you feel a little freer. You feel a little lighter. You know what I'm saying? And this is the last thing I say, play with children. When you play with children. <laughs> so Julie, everybody don't like kids. So if you don't like kids. Then don't do that. I think find a, you know, something Universally, yeah. find some art. Yeah. I think this, that's what art does. That's, 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 that's why. If that's I, your I, MO. No, no, no. I'm gonna, look, I'm going to tell yeah. you. <laughs> art is everything. Mm -hmm. This is this is me as an artist running an arts organization. There's nothing that we do that we cannot find in art, whether it's going to a museum, listening to some music, mm -hmm. drawing, cooking, mm -hmm. designing, appreciate mm -hmm. the art in your life. Take a moment and go, somebody designed this, this, this sofa. Mm -hmm. Somebody Sorry. designed my shoes, <laughs> my, my, my phone, someone designed my hair products, my earrings, mm -hmm. our makeup. Take a minute to appreciate the creation around you like and that. it reminds yeah. you how you're connected in all of the beautiful that. ways mm -hmm. 
that creation happens. It's a reminder mm-hmm. that that's that's the armor. Those are those are the weapons. That's what endures. We have paintings, you know, down the street, whether they're stolen or not. They have endured <laughs> for centuries. Before so we had funny. paint, we were on a wall in a cave somewhere. This is my buffalo. This is my family. This Sorry. is my cave. Before there was papyrus, we were singing our songs. Everybody, every culture. This is how we celebrate. This is who died. This is who we love. This is the berry to eat. This one will kill mm-hmm. you. That we have art is essential. And when we get away from art, that's when our souls shrivel up. When we stop funding art, that's when we have insurrections. Do the math mm-hmm. and draw that line between when we stop mm-hmm. having art in school mm-hmm. and the adults that we mm-hmm. have right, right now, now and their inability to process, mm-hmm. their inability to see other people's humanity, mm-hmm. their inability to communicate, to get their own emotions regulated. Everybody is not an athlete or academic. Some of us are artists and we need that and it is essential. So when you are feeling like that, find some art. Whatever you define art, it's not a monolith. It's a bunch of stuff. It's tons of it in this city. If you've seen it all downtown, go to the other 76 communities, especially the brown and black ones. It's Mm. everywhere spilling, vomiting, rolling over with art everywhere, on walls, there's music coming out of the store, there's food you haven't tasted, clothes you haven't worn, hair size you've never seen before. Roll around with some art, you will always feel better. We can take one more short question and then I have my special request for you, which is gonna start becoming a pattern. I already know which one I want, so yeah. All right, one more short question, that's all I got. Or we can jump to my special request. Cool, we can jump to my fr- okay. Raising Free Daughters as your read for oh, today. Yeah. Okay. I like just peruse her poems and I'm like, she's going to read that one next. <laughs> oh, I, thank you for letting me read that. Um, one moment while I, while I put it up on Beyonce's <laughs> internet. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. I was, that was apropos. I was well, well curious. Because Bessie, Bessie's good. <laughs> well done. Well done, Bessie. Really good. Yeah. If you raise free daughters, they will be the keys that unlock the shackles. They will teach you how to live without ceilings. They will show you that the space between dreams and reality is just a beautiful leap. If you raise free daughters, they will teach you to unlearn, unprogram, unpack everything you know about being a woman, about loving, about trusting. You will speak to yourself differently so you can speak to her differently. You will love yourself differently so she can love herself infinitely. Mm. If you raise free daughters, they will fly far and high and you will hold your breath and bite your tongue and fight the urge to keep them close. If you raise free daughters, your throat will be tight as they take flight into the Milky Way. If you raise free daughters, they will correct you. And you will be humbled because they will be right. (laughs) If you raise free daughters, they will grow into free women and they will never understand what it feels like to make themselves smaller. To be loved, to be accepted, to dim their light, to be silent, to be safe. They will lead 
and you will follow because if you raise free daughters, they will break generations long lies that you are limited, less than, incapable, unelectable, unfit. They will never know a limitation. They will forge new paths, trail blazers, fighters, winners, Hope will not be a mustard seed. It will Mm. be a battle cry, a victory. They will breathe courage and never leave a sister behind. If you raise free daughters, they will free you and then the world. What are your children's names? Um, Sage, Solomon, and Scarlet. So Sage is my oldest dragon. She's 23 and just got her master's in his teaching art, CPS. Mm Um, y'all like some candles and some prayers. She's got 500 kids a week that she sees, a pre-K through eighth grade. And um, thank God she's bilingual because every day she's getting more and more migrant kids. And, um, you know, drawing upon her grandmother's experience and mine as first generation. But um, talk about challenges as being a first year teacher is, it is no light load. Solomon is, a professional um, e-gamer. Um, okay, right on. Listen, I didn't even know that was possible, yeah, but mm-hmm. he travels the world. Um, wow. He has a that salary, so contract, awesome. a manager. This is, this is some new stuff. Um, and um, Scarlett, my 15-year-old, um, is a sophomore in high school and um, brilliant and an artist, too, and a hell of an activist. We were at school meeting today with teachers. You pick the wrong one or right one, whichever whichever oh, one you want to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, those are my babies. All right, thank you, everybody. Thank you. That's it. That's it for thank us. You. Thank you, Becky. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives, or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. If you want to keep up with Bessie, you can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Bessie underscore Alcantara. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director Bessie Alcantara. It's produced, researched, and edited by Catherine Best and Deanna Phillips. Thanks for listening.